Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today, we continue our series, The Story of the Bible, as we now venture into the Gospels through Acts chapter 15, as Dr. Neufeld presents a message entitled, From the Cross to the World. Many of us know that the gospel accounts are weighted biographies. Let me explain that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books in the New Testament, are also called the Gospels. They report the good news of Jesus and so are a kind of a biography written from the perspective of four different eyewitnesses. Matthew was one of the 12 disciples chosen by Christ who was also trained as a scribe. He was a Levite and then later as a tax collector employed by the Romans would have put his scribal skills together for he would have been required by the Roman authorities to be a meticulous note taker keeping track of his activities. The Romans were not ready to be taken advantage of by Jewish tax collectors, so note-taking was a must to ensure transparency. Now, I mention that because I have a personal theory around Matthew. Many scholars have noted that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in their biographies of Jesus, seem to rely on a common document. They've often called that document Q. The letter Q is used because it comes from the German word Quelle, or in English, source. And so it's theorized that there must have been some sort of a source document that was traded among the gospel writers. They would have made use of that document to form the basis of the biography of Jesus or the gospels that they were writing. All the disciples may have had a copy of this. Now, of course, that's only a theory, but it has some merit. Now, here's my theory. If some such document actually existed, someone had to write it. Now, I can't imagine anyone having constructed such a document other than one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. It must have been one of his eyewitnesses. Now, among the 12, one of them was trained both as a Jewish scribe and as a Roman note-taker. His name was Matthew. I believe it's possible that Matthew took meticulous notes of the ministry of Jesus while it was occurring. Most likely, those notes would have been in Aramaic. And then his notes, if they had indeed existed, would have formed the foundation of the three Gospels, that of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And yes, I know that's but a theory. But whatever the case, we know that the Gospels are accurate and reliable historical accounts of Jesus. But we also know that they do not read like a usual biography. They were never intended to be a standard life of Christ. They are instead a distinct kind of literature. In a sense, they're kind of a hybrid. They're both a historical, accurate record, and they're an evangelistic proclamation. Now, I've said that the gospel accounts are weighted biographies. And here's what I mean. All the weight is loaded to the back end, meaning that they put all their emphasis on what happened to the last. And so Matthew has 28 chapters, and eight of those chapters deal with the last week of Jesus' life, also called Passion Week. Hence, about 28% of Matthew, or well over a quarter of his book, deals with one week in the life of Jesus. And that's what I mean when I say they're weighted biographies. Mark has 16 chapters, and six of those chapters deal with a Passion Week, or about 35.5%, which accounts for over a third of the book. Luke has 24 chapters, six deal with Passion Week, or exactly 25% of his book. And John, well, that one takes the cake. 
John has 21 chapters, and 10 of them deal with the events of Passion Week, close to one half of his book. So we can clearly see where the emphasis lies. And so even though the gospel writers present a powerful and compelling case that Jesus really is the Christ and the fulfillment of the covenants with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, and is the center of the Bible storyline, yet all four of them, everything in the story they tell, is leading to one central focal point. They're leading us to the cross, and then, of course, they're leading us to the empty tomb. And that seems astonishing. As important as the sermons of Jesus are, and the miracles, and the acts of compassion, and his fulfilling of Old Testament prophecies, clearly the weight of these writings are loaded to the end, centering on the bloody and brutal cross. But because when the gospel writers make the case that Jesus really is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, they will argue that in order to fulfill the Old Testament, that this has to be done by Jesus dying on a cross. I suppose the best example of that is recorded in Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. Jesus has now been raised from the dead, and he is walking alongside of two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. And here's what Jesus tells them. O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so the Gospels faithfully retell the account of Passion Week, beginning with his triumphal ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, his weeping over the city of Jerusalem because Jerusalem was about to reject their Messiah his driving out of the money changers, and thus his condemnation of the temple worship, his cursing of the fig tree, and with that, the symbol of the cursing of the temple, his disputes with the Jewish religious leaders, and eventually his crucifixion as the fulfillment of the true meaning of Passover. See, the events of this week are poured over with great detail by all four gospel writers so that the reader is made to understand that the events of Christ's crucifixion are not an accident or a plan gone bad, but that this is the very reason why he came. John records in John 10, verse 11, Jesus is speaking, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Or as Matthew describes it in Matthew 16, verses 21 to 22, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. See, the Gospels present the final week of Jesus' life, his, his sufferings, his betrayal, his crucifixion, followed by the resurrection, not just as the highlight of his life, but it is the very reason why he had come. And it is not as if this were simply the perspective of the Gospel writers. The rest of the New Testament picks up that theme as well. Let me give three examples. The first comes from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 2, where where Paul is explaining his missionary strategy. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, when Paul says he knew nothing but the crucified Jesus, he doesn't mean that the only thing he ever spoke about was the cross. You just read the book and you can find out that's clearly not the case. It means that for him, everything he preaches leads to the cross as the centerpiece of the life of Jesus and the thing around which everything else makes sense. A second example taken from Galatians 6 verse 14. 
But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. And then lastly, Revelation 5 verse 14 portrays this great throng in heaven, and they're praising God by saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain or who was slaughtered. You see, from the perspective of the book of Revelation, the crucifixion of Jesus makes him worthy of all praise and adoration. Now, following the events of his passion, Jesus then sets about for 40 days, presenting himself alive to his followers, and then while on the Mount of Olives, he ascends into heaven, and then he promises that he will return. Now, these events are well known by most Christians. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53, he who is the Christ, the one destined to rule, came, as Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, before Jesus would consummate the kingdom of God and rule the earth from David's ancient throne, he would secure for himself a people from every tribe and nation and tongue. The hope of Abraham, that the entire earth would be blessed, this hope could not be accomplished if Jesus had not died for the sins of those for whom he would make his own. We're left again with the words of Jesus. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? How could the storyline of the Bible be fulfilled unless the question of human sin should be dealt with? And so much of the rest of the New Testament takes up the issue of what the death of Jesus actually meant, what it accomplished, how his death on Jerusalem's cross actually fulfilled the hope and the longing of the entire Old Testament, beginning with the story from Genesis, that one would come to crush the head of the serpent, all the way through to the hope of David that one would rule over the whole earth. Everything but everything is accomplished and finally done when we come to the cross. That's the point of the gospel writers. That's what they're trying to communicate. And that's why it's not just a biography. It's an attempt to help us to see that everything centers on that one pivotal moment. On this moment, the entire hope of God's redemptive narrative lies. Following Christ involves offering Him everything. Therefore, it naturally follows that following Christ includes our money and our resources. Well, this month, we're excited to offer you Dr. John Newfeld's entire CD series, God and Money, as our free Bible teaching resource, and, and all you need to do is ask. In this five-message series, Dr. Newfeld describes the advantages of money, its inherent dangers, and how we should manage our money based on an understanding of what the Bible actually teaches. Break down some of the myths and open up your heart and mind as you listen to this important series. God and money. Ask your free copy today. All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Before Jesus ascended, he was to give a command to his disciples that they would go into the world and preach the gospel that he had died for the sins of a ruined and fallen human race, and with this message, turned men and women from around the globe into followers of Jesus. And with that, he ascends into heaven, promising his followers that after the Holy Spirit had fallen on them, they are to fulfill their task. And as the reader of the Bible is taken to the book of Acts, the reader is left to wonder how, what from the outset, 
must have looked like a small persecuted sect within Judaism was ever to accomplish the task of creating a global movement of people dedicated to the service of their Messiah King, Jesus of Nazareth, how he demonstrated his victory over death and therefore is the Son of God. Now, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, a small band of followers of Jesus in Jerusalem will begin that task. The Bible records no master strategy. How does this small group reach out to a world? And so, instead of acting upon a global strategy, they set out to preach to the people of Jerusalem, the very people who had witnessed the passion of Jesus, that this Jesus whom they crucified has been raised and is the rightful heir of David's throne and the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. Peter preached the first of such sermons, and 3,000 people repented of their sins, they were baptized, and were included among the people of the Messiah. And so a church had begun. The first ever Christian church, what would be today called a megachurch. They organized themselves, says Acts 2, and they devoted themselves to four things. They gave themselves to being instructed by the apostles who taught them the meaning of the Christ event. What they would have taught is probably what we now have recorded in the four Gospels. Secondly, they committed themselves to the fellowship, which for them meant a commitment to one another and to collectively advancing the message of Jesus into their community. Thirdly, they gave themselves to the breaking of bread, and this must have meant that the Lord's Supper, which had been established just a short time before, was practiced from the very outset of the church. And finally, they gave themselves to prayer. They're aware that the task that has been given to them cannot be fulfilled on their own. They will need divine guidance. And had divine guidance not been there, that might well have been the end of the story. That's because the first followers of Christ were all Jews. They are committed to the Old Testament law, which would have included the demand for circumcision, the eating of a kosher diet, the separation of themselves from Gentiles. I mean, after all, that's how they lived. And even though Jesus had openly stated his willingness to go beyond Jewish boundaries, none of his followers even had the slightest idea how to go about that. Now, this should have remained a very small movement. But then four things happened, things that God had planned. But the church had not, and that would change everything. The first was an outbreak of persecution in Jerusalem. One of their own, a leader in the newly formed church, was stoned to death, and an outraged religious establishment forced some of the believers out of Jerusalem. They went to Judea and Samaria, and the effect was that these persecuted Christians started sharing the gospel wherever they went. Persecution scattered them and grew the church. A second major event was the conversion of a leading Jewish rabbi by the name of Saul. Apparently, some Jewish Christians running from persecution had ended up in Damascus in Syria and must have been sharing the gospel among the Jews of Damascus, and no doubt they were winning converts. Saul was given orders by the Jewish religious establishment to stop this activity. And while on the way to Damascus, he encounters the risen Christ, and Saul himself is converted. The impact of this event is still, I'm going to argue, being felt in the world today. A third major event would come in two stages. Stage one, Peter the Apostle has a strange vision and in consequence shares the gospel with a group of Roman military men and their families who were stationed in the Jewish city of Caesarea. How shall one handle this phenomenon of, of Gentile followers of Jesus who weren't kosher and who didn't hold the separation principles in the Mosaic law? 
Stage two of this same event happened in the Syrian city of Antioch, and the Bible doesn't tell us how this event occurred. But a church, a fellowship of followers of Jesus, had been formed in Antioch and in some unexpected fashion. A great many of them weren't Jews at all, but Gentiles. Furthermore, the converted rabbi Saul, the man who claimed that he had seen the resurrected Jesus, was giving leadership there and was going by a Greek name, Paul. And to complicate matters even further, the church in Antioch had sent Paul and Barnabas on the first ever missionary trip. And they had been starting churches, fellowships of converts to Jesus in southern Turkey, and almost all of these people were Gentiles as well. And this event led to the fourth major event, an event that quite literally changed the world. It's recorded in Acts 15. Let me set it up by reading verses 1 and 2. But some of the men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed, from Antioch that is, to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now for the person who's paying attention, everything, the entire Bible storyline, now comes to a crossroads. Think of it this way. If a church is built among the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are not taught to submit to the law of Moses, then exactly who is Jesus? If Jesus is not the fulfillment of the longings of Abraham and Moses and David, if Jesus is not the long-expected king who fulfills the Bible storyline, then, well, all we have in these churches is just another new religion with another founder. But if the Gentiles must be circumcised and then be asked to adhere to the Mosaic regulations regarding clean foods and clean and unclean animals, well, at that point, the gospel has no chance of ever being heard. That's because these kinds of restrictions would make it virtually impossible for the gospel to cross any cultural barriers at all. And so the early church came to an important crossroads. What exactly was the gospel of Jesus? Let me read some of the debate that occurred in the Council of Jerusalem. Now, the Apostle Peter has the floor. He was recounting the conversion of Cornelius and the other Roman military families in Caesarea. I'm reading Acts 15, verses 7 to 9. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the same Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And with that, a mouthful was said. The heart was cleansed, said Peter, not by observing the law of Moses or by keeping oneself ritually clean through ceremonial cleansing. But the heart is cleansed of all of its sins by faith. And he, of course, meant by faith in Jesus, who was crucified for all who would believe in him. But what of the Mosaic law and what of the wider Old Testament? Well, the Council of Jerusalem then said something that would take believers a great deal of time to understand. Acts 4.19 records them as saying, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. See, the troubling spoken of here was to trouble them with the demand of circumcision the demand of dietary restrictions, the demand of ritualistic cleansing, the demand, well, that they should become Jewish. But what of the Old Testament law? 
Well, the apostles at the council were not done. They instructed the Gentile followers of Jesus to refrain from sexual immorality and from meat that had been strangled and from blood. Now, without getting into the details regarding meat and blood, it becomes clear that the council made a distinction between ethical commands in the law that were intended for all people at all times and some cultural commands that were intended only for Israel. And then a great portion of the New Testament began to work that out. See, a way was found by the guidance of the Holy Spirit to present the gospel of Jesus to Gentiles without demanding that they become Jewish and yet still demanding that they live in submission to the God of Abraham and Moses and David. And and that's the storyline for us as well. See, most of those of us who are listening are Gentiles, and we've learned that we have been grafted into the vine, into the storyline of Israel. We're unnatural branches who have come to love the God of Israel and have become faithful to Him even while we continue to live as Gentiles. And that's the genius of the Bible. More about that as we carry on in the Bible storyline. John, this gives us a great introduction to the beginning of the church. And, you know, we have a tendency today to be pretty negative about the church and all the things that it does wrong. But really, it is God's chosen instrument, isn't it? Yeah, Ben, it's, um, you know, Jesus died to build a church, to create a church, to make a people of God who are called by his name. And sometimes uh, you and I have heard people saying, you know, if we could only get back to the original church, the early church, and, and yet when we come to the early church, we do see that God is deeply involved in his church. But I'm, I'm thinking about the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And there were very strong voices there that argued that the church should not be reaching out to the Gentiles in the way that they were. I mean, they had missed everything that was there in the uh, Great Commission uh, and become completely ensnared on one little point. And yeah, to me, as I read that, I I think that's kind of like how the church always is. Yeah, you know, and we have a tendency to become insular, don't we? And that's not what the church is about at all. Yeah, this, this looking inward, and we're only talking to each other, and we haven't looked out and said, there are people whom Christ has died for. In fact, you know, as a pastor, I wonder how many people have told me, Pastor, I don't want the church to grow anymore. And I always want to ask the individual, I mean, so what's the alternative then? That people are left without knowing Christ. I think that's the alternative. Uh, so yeah, the church is always in trouble, it would seem. John, thanks for a great message. Back to the Bible Canada leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Today, there are 1.6 billion websites on how to get rich quick. I'm, I'm only joking. You know, but our TVs promise that a newer car, a colder drink, or a bigger house will be just the ticket to bring joy. But if money were the key to happiness, we'd be the happiest culture in history. Instead, we access more psychologists, lawyers, and antidepressants than any previous generation. So what makes life rich? Well, this month, Phil Calloway uncovers some answers in the new Laugh-Again booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich. Money is a blessing when held in our hands, but never in our hearts. To request your copy of the booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich, as our free gift during the month of May, visit us online at backtothebible.ca 
or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.